The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. After the headlines, I interview the renowned British documentary filmmaker Emil Gessen, whose current project is one of the most anticipated films in recent history called 45 Days, The Fight for a Nation. Let's go over some headlines from this morning and over the weekend. The second Senate impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump is scheduled to kick off on Tuesday. House Democrats on Thursday saw testimony from Trump himself at the trial, a move that was swiftly rejected by Trump's legal team. Democrats are unlikely to subpoena the former president and risk a drawn-out legal battle, feeling they can make their case that he incited the riots without his testimony, just as they swiftly impeached him for incitement of insurrection one week after the January 6th riots. Despite claims that British royals don't meddle in politics, The Guardian has exposed one of Queen Elizabeth's self-serving political moves. The Queen successfully lobbied the government to change a draft law in order to conceal her, quote, embarrassing, end quote, private wealth from the public, according to documents discovered by The Guardian. A series of government memos unearthed in the National Archives revealed that Elizabeth Windsor's private lawyer put pressure on ministers to alter proposed legislation to prevent her shareholdings from being discovered and disclosed to the public. Evidence of monarchs lobbying of ministers was uncovered by a Guardian investigation into the royal family's use of an arcane parliamentary procedure known as Queen's Consent to secretly influence the formation of British laws. Pfizer expects to nearly cut in half the amount of time it takes to produce a batch of COVID-19 vaccine from 110 days to an average of 60, as it makes the process more efficient and production is built out. As of Saturday, about 20.6 million doses of Pfizer vaccine had been administered nationwide. Los Angeles County continues to report a decrease in the number of daily new coronavirus cases, but officials remain concerned that Super Bowl gatherings would reverse the course. On Saturday, 4,860 new confirmed cases and 193 related deaths were reported, bringing the total number of fatalities countywide to 17,955, according to the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. The daily death toll has continued to show a steady decline since mid-January, when the county was averaging 241 deaths per day. Los Angeles has seen significant relief from the virus in recent weeks. The average seven day of new cases has fallen from about 15,100 down to about 5,600 cases a day. Still, hospital intensive care units remain strained and the death toll continues to be high. Statewide, more than 43,000 people have died of COVID-19 since the pandemic began. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. What inspired me to talk about this topic for today's Let's Get Blunt is this revelation by the Guardian newspaper that Queen Elizabeth in the 70s used what's called Queen's Consent 
to secretly influence uh, British law in order to hide her wealth. Now, for those of you who may not know, the the British royal family claims that they, they don't get involved in politics. In fact, on the surface, they don't make comments about it, they don't take sides, they don't have anything to say about it. But, of course, that's just for public relations, and that's just part of the deal they have with the British people. But um, beneath the surface, uh, <laughs> they certainly do have a lot to say and a lot to do. We have learned about many other sort of high-profile things that have been kept from us later on. And there are so many examples of them, from the Watergate scandal to Iran-Contra to Panama Papers, which basically showed that um, shell corporations were used for illegal purposes, including fraud, tax evasion, evading uh, international sanctions by the super-wealthy corporations. Uh, We now know about the Guantanamo Bay files, which showed that 150 innocent Afghans, including farmers and chefs and drivers, were held for years without charges. The youngest one was 14 years old. The oldest one was 89. We now know about the Downing Street memo, which sometimes uh, it's called, but by Iraq war critics, uh, it's called the smoking gun memo that came out in 2002. Uh, that showed that the British government knew full well that the Bush, the George W. Bush administration was just determined to invade Iraq and using the so-called weapons of mass destruction as an excuse to go in. And Bush wanted the, the British backing. Of course, we now know that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, side note, the French knew this, and French were really the only major Western company that stood up to Bush and said, uh, we're not going to Iraq, we're not going to do this, we're not with you, because we don't think that there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Of course, there's, there was this big backlash by the Bush administration, the neocons at the time, who wanted a boycott of France and French goods. Some were calling for changing the name of French fries to Freedom Fries and don't French kiss and, you know, all this absurdity that went along. But that's a different topic about the, the French really sticking to their guns and having some morals and values. But this was just another scandal that came to light. And there was a film about it a couple of years ago and on and on and on. So the point is that these sorts of things happen all the time. Sometimes we learn about them decades later when either the FBI or the CIA declassifies the information and everyone goes, oh, okay, so, you know, those few people who blew the whistle about it or wrote about it were right. But a lot of it happens uh, without us knowing. And what this really tells us is that there are two sets of rules, uh, one set for the 99% and another set for the 1%, either the super wealthy and or super uh, powerful and influential, who basically get away with a lot. (laughs) Just most recently, no other president has gotten away with so much egregious illegal acts and immoral acts than Donald Trump. For four years, uh, he just bulldozed himself through this country uh, in, in such a unbelievable way that we're still paying for it and we will be for a long time to come. Thankfully, he's being impeached for the second time. But, you know, we do need to be open to learning about these things, investigate, consider the sources, talk about it, 
and uh, not be in denial about it and be blunt. Just be direct and blunt and uh, ask the right questions so that we can unravel these things sooner rather than later. So there you have it. That's my uh, let's get blunt moment. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Emil Gessen served in the British Royal Marines for 12 years. Following his service that included time served in Afghanistan and Iraq, he swapped his rifle for a camera to become a documentary filmmaker. Emil is a director and a writer known for Robin Hood Complex, The Fight Against Islamic State, Robin Hood Complex, Europe's Forgotten War, and Thorhold Presents. He is now working on his latest documentary film about the war in Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, called 45 Days, The Fight for a Nation. Good morning, Emil. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic today. How are you this morning? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. How are you? I am well. It is morning in LA, and you are in Armenia, which is 12 hours uh, time difference, so it's evening there. It is indeed. Yes, so... Thanks for being on the show. Uh, I'm fascinated to talk to you about what you are doing in Armenia. I know you're working on a documentary. And before we get into anything, I just want to get your perspective, your general perspective on what is happening in Armenia right now, in Yerevan, in this post-Artsakh war era, and the Mm. sort of the the energy of the people in the city. Yes, I've been here during the war, after the war, and now just well just after the war now post-war and there's been a definitely a different vibe in people's mentality their their demeanor and what's actually going on in the city and right now things things are good people are going about their business people are trying to move forward they know that they've lost the war they know they've lost many men they know they've lost territory but people need to get on with their lives and i get so many messages online from people especially mainly people in america going oh it's disrespectful that people are out dancing and singing uh, partying and such but life needs to go on and when you're at the cold face of what just happened um in the last few months People don't want to put it behind them, but they need to move forward with their lives because you can't sit mourning. So at the moment, the vibe is pretty good. Life's coming back, um, but there's still a little bit of political tension at the moment, which I sense. I think part of the reason that it's hard to move on is because of the limbo situation. I mean, as we speak, uh, Azerbaijanis are constantly trying to threaten and intimidate Armenians, not just around uh, territory of Artsakh or what's left of it, but Armenia proper as well. And um, I was watching an interview with you, and you said something interesting, which I think it's very true in this case too. And you were talking about the Armenian genocide and how Armenians haven't had closure because Mm. not only Turkey hasn't acknowledged it, but only 30 nations across the globe have recognized it so it's really hard to have closure and move on and of course with this Artsakh this I have a hard time calling it a war because it was a premeditated genocidal assault and ethnic cleansing Um, there's so many factors that are still open with the Aliyev and Erdogan's very Mm -hmm. aggressive rhetoric people are having a really hard time cleaning up and getting into the sort of you know, let's take care of our wounds phase. Mm. So I can see that. I can see uh, how or why people would say that. Yeah, no, totally. And and but I think I've said this several times. There's three different kind of 
people involved in this, what's recently happened. You've got the people from the Karabakh region, you've got people from Armenia, and then you've got the diaspora people. And all three of them see what's happened very differently. And a few days ago when I was in Stepanica, life's getting back to normal. There's shops opened, people going about their business, and you speak to people and they go, yeah, we've just lost a lot of territory. There's a lot of hardship um, that people are going through, but we need to move forward. The Russians are here. They're providing us the security at the moment, and we, we need to just get on with our lives. And then you come to Armenia and you speak to the Armenians, and they're like, yeah, it's really bad. We need to, like, politically, we need to change. We need to do stuff. We need to go back, take our territory back. And then you speak to diasporans, and this is a, obviously a generalisation, but as a whole, a lot of people I speak to go, it's, it's disgusting, we should have done more, where's the Armenia fund gone, what's happened here? There's a lot of the blame game, because they're so far away from actually what's happened to um, the people here on the ground and such. There's three different ways of looking at it through three different Armenian perspectives. Yeah, I like that. I like to hear your perspective, and I think I should go back a little bit. Um, of course, I read your bio for our listeners, but you are you are a British documentary maker. Your last documentary uh, was a big hit. Uh, your dad is a is a of Syrian descent, I believe, correct? Yes, he's Christian Syrian. Christian Syrian, and your last documentary was called uh, Robin Hood Complex: Europe's Forgotten War, which centered yeah. on Ukraine. Yes, I've done two feature documentaries, Robin Hood Complex, The Fight Against Islamic State, about foreign volunteers that went to Iraq and Syria to fight Islamic State. So I spent a lot of time out that region. And then the Ukraine one you just said there about volunteer fighters fighting against the Russian pro-separatists. So war zones is what I do. I specialise in war. I'm a former Royal Marine commando, um, a British Royal Marine commando. I served 12 years. I've done three tours um, of Afghanistan, very bloody tours, and also the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So war zones is what I specialise in. So for me to go into a war zone, like when I chose to come to this one, I to begin with, I thought it probably wouldn't last long. I thought it'd be another repeat of 2016. And then when I did decide to come out, because I, I self-fund everything or get donations. And when I came out here, I wasn't really going to make a documentary on the war. And then when I got here, I just realised that there's so many human stories to tell here. And that's where we went into the production to make this feature film, which we're now currently moving into the post-production phase. Wow, that's fantastic. And it's called 40 Days, The Fight for a Nation. 45 Days. 45 Days, I'm sorry. 45 Days, The Fight for a Nation. Yeah. So the reason we went, the war was actually 44 days. But the reason why we've gone for 45 days, because the 45th day was November the 10th. And that was the day that the peace agreement was signed. That's the day the Russians moved into the region, taking up positions. So really the 45th day, it was the most crucial day, the turning point of history for this region here. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with British documentary filmmaker Emil Gessen. Yeah, I almost, uh, when, I, when I was reading the title of your film, I thought, oh, I wonder how come he didn't do 40 Days, because uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Franz Werfel's book, The 40 Days of Musadah which is probably the most uh, famous novel ever written about the Armenian genocide based on the villagers of uh, Musadar who, toward the end of the Armenian genocide, they they fled to the mountain, the Musadar uh, mountain, and they resisted 
and kept safe until the French Navy ships in the Mediterranean rescued them. Mm. It lasted longer than that, but when Franz Werfel wrote the book, he called it 40 Days of Musadar, and it was a reference to the biblical 40 days that repeats itself a lot, both Old and the New Testaments. But I digress. I... There's so many questions that I have, um, and I was, you know, I was watching, as I said, that interview with you, and, you know, I, I don't want to take it for granted that a lot of listeners would want to know things that I already know, so I'm going to ask you, so why, you know, you're British, and why do, why Armenia? There's so many conflicts happening all over the world. Well, there is conflicts around the world, but I know you don't want to refer to this as a war, but this was a conventional war between two sides. And in the sense that it was Armenia versus Azerbaijan, clearly there was a lot more to it in the sense with the Turkish involvement and the Russian underlying geopolitical um, issue. But really, is because I specialise in war, people are going to me and me, are you going to go out there and cover it? Because no one in the media is talking about this. So generally, I do grassroots level stuff, getting in there, getting in, seeing first-hand accounts of what's going on. And then then I've decided, and I go, yeah, this, I'm going to bite the bullet, get myself out there. So when I came out here, I've because I, like I say, my father's a Syrian Christian, the war in Syria, that's been, that was happening for years, decade near enough, is the fact that I think the Christians were forgotten about, and I'm not religious, and I, I I don't think this is a religious war, but at the same time, the minorities of Syria were forgotten about because the Western narrative of media didn't want to represent them because they Assad obviously aligned with the minorities. And so I thought, I could potentially see this happening here, especially with the Turkish involvement, because like I was saying, I've done a lot of work in Iraq and Syria, and I saw the Turkish aggression there. I saw the Turks and the Saudis who were funding terrorists to fight against the Kurds. And I also saw that the Kurds, who I spent a lot of time with, who were very fundamental in the fight against Islamic State, and once the war with Islamic State was over, they were totally turned on. The, mm-hmm. the the US turned their back on them. It was, and I could see what was going on here, potentially in Armenia, that a small nation of two to three million people or who are surrounded by people that don't particularly like them with the genocides of 1915. I thought, this is a story that needs to be told. Um, and like I said, I don't want to turn it into a religious story or political story because that's not what the documentary is about. It's about the humanization and also but the, the intergenerational trauma here. Sorry to uh, cut you off. but no, And great. I think there are some people, there are a lot of people that are reluctant to point this out but there are religious undertones in this in yes in the the objective and the motivation of turkey and azerbaijan it's land but there is some religious undertones yeah uh, definitely that's always course, been there of course yeah that's evidential but i don't think it's been blatantly run as a religious war as such it's not like conflict of northern ireland between the protestants and the catholics right. or an african country it hasn't been like a crusade or Correct. against um, or islam war but at the same time like you're saying there is that underlying issue because armenia ge- geopolitically and its geography where it physically sits is you've got on one side you've got turkey on the other side you've got azerbaijan who are brothers. They are the same people as such. In the middle, you've got Armenians, who are totally different to them. And then to the south, you've got the Iranians. And then to the north, you've got the Georgians. Is Where Armenia sits, it is a prison of its own geography. And that was crucial in this war, um, in how the 
war played out because all you you had the enemies to either side of you to the south you had the Iranians which wanted to have influence and they're not the most savory kind of people seen by the west and then to the north you've got the Georgians who are like very reluctant to assist Armenia especially with the transit of the border and supplies and resupplies because obviously they don't like the Russians um, so there's a lot of issues here that really Armenia is a, it is a war of David versus Goliath and Armenia was just sat in there and was starved out Yeah, and and we we should mention for those who may not be familiar with it, that leading up to this genocidal attack, which was orchestrated by Turkey, was a proxy war vis-a-vis Azerbaijan. Erdogan uh, recruited ISIS fighters and jihadist mercenaries from Syria, Libya, and Pakistan. There was a tremendous amount of money spent leading up to it. Uh, Azerbaijan hired six lobbyists and PR firms in Washington, D.C., heavy hitter ones, to change the narrative, to brainwash our members of Congress, at least the ones that they were able to, um, mm. and to get Western media to either not cover it or cover it based on their narrative. So it was a very calculated attack. The timing of it during a time when the world was preoccupied with COVID, the U.S. was preoccupied with the election, And of course, uh, Trump being a pal with Erdogan and having a stake in it, these two towers, building one in Azerbaijan, those were all sort of, all of that played against against this terrible catastrophe that happened, that we're still trying to get Western media to cover it uh, accurately, or at least objectively. And, and, and I, I totally agree exactly what you're saying there. But what I will say and add to this is the fact is the Armenian government did not help themselves when it came to Western media reporting here. Is I had my hands tied during the war. I wasn't allowed to film what I wanted to film. I didn't want to. I weren't allowed to tell the stories I wanted to tell. Is because here in Armenia they didn't have a clue how to deal with Western media. They didn't understand that independence of freelancers actually supply a lot of the news content to mainstream media. So when you had people like myself trying to get to tell the story that there's a war going on, you were getting restricted and saying, oh, you can't film that. I go, why? Oh, because it's sensitive. It's not sensitive. They're soldiers. That's a truck. You need to tell the world there's a war going on here. And if you don't allow us to tell that story, no one's going to be interested in that story. So that was hard. Because because the the journalists that I was corresponding with were telling me that even though Azerbaijan had completely forbidden any journalists to enter the country, Armenia was freely accepting journalists to arrive there. But I think what I'm hearing is that when it came down to like the front lines, yeah. my guess is that they justified it as security reasons or, or for the yeah. war plan or for secrets and this and that not to get out. Uh, or the progress uh, that some of some of the footage that would have been could have been deal breakers. You weren't allowed to do it. I'm, I'm an ex Royal Marine commando. I fought, like I said, in several places. I've worked with journalists. I understand how it works. And the, in my opinion, here they did not take advantage of what they had. And yeah, you could say they could given out secrets and stuff like that. Is when I went to the front line afterwards, they looked through my footage to see if there was anything that was sensitive in there or not. And they said, yeah, cool, there's nothing sensitive in there. We're happy for you to do it. And then there's a photo photographer I was with. They looked through his pictures and they go, oh, can you just delete them two pictures? They weren't, I'm not saying they were aggressive in that sense, but they were like, please, can you delete them two pictures because there's a camera system in there we don't want Azaris to see. And he's like, yeah, brilliant, we can get rid of that. And that cooperation was, that was brilliant. But they weren't allowing that across the board. Mm-hmm. And that's the issue. We- 
I, I they like didn't have a that. press team, a communications team. Well, that's a very good. Well, yeah, that's okay. very good feedback. And I think, uh, like I know, you know, I know an official, a high-ranking official in the Armenian government that probably would be interested to hear your perspective on that because that's something that needs improvement. You know, anyone, totally, uh, anyone who knows the history of at least the 20th century knows that some photos, some videos have been chapter turners. They've been instrumental in getting the word out. I mean, we have photos of, of you know, Vietnam War and, uh, you know, apartheid South Africa and such that have really opened people's eyes. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with British documentary filmmaker Emil Gessen. But I do have to ask you this now. There have been plethora of beheading videos of Azerbaijanis beheading Armenians alive, palpitating mm. on the floor, old men, captured soldiers. And this is all available now. But yet I still, you know, read and watch, you know, BBC and The Guardian and New York Times and CNN, and I see nothing. And, and they're still not covering it. What I will say to people, and this is not me going on a rant against an independent who I am against the mainstream. I don't want to be seen as that like vigilante against um, the mainstream media. But you need to remember corporations are businesses. They need to drive profit. And that is simple. That's what they do. They tell stories, but they tell stories that their audience want to hear. It's an echo chamber. And there, of course, there are some mainstreams that will go against the grain sometimes. But generally across the board... A newspaper is controlled by an editor. He will sit there and go yes and no to a story. On television, it'll be a commissioner. And so when people are trying to tell stories, is as a, as a media corporation, they need to go, does that suit our narrative? Is our narrative to be supporting Armenia or to be against Armenia? And I think very much that's what's happened in this war. It's what's happened in Ukraine. It's what's happened in Syria. <laughs> but I have to, I have to, I'm sorry, I have to the, stop you the, there because I agree with you 100% that I always sort of smile when someone says a liberal media because to me there is no such thing as liberal media. Most commercial media is for profit, therefore they can't be liberal uh, by design. And I do understand that, you know, at the end of the day, it's about advertisers and it's about audience and who's going to watch it. But agree with you 100%. But that makes me sad because, and, and not to um, say that two or three people in a Western European country dying is any less significant. They, too, have families and such. But if two or three people are killed by a terrorist in Paris or London or Berlin, it's across the entire world, it's breaking news. Mm. And and yet no one says that reporting it as news, just news, is supporting the French or supporting the, the ISIS or such not. But when it comes to Armenia, when these terrorists, literally terrorists, are slaughtering Armenians, they're dragging civilians out of their house and they're beheading them for just sake of news that's not being covered. And how is it that all of a sudden that becomes a political issue? So that is the double standard that the Western European uh, and, and just Western media has to be called out on. And, and that's the egregiousness. And, yeah, I totally agree with you. That's the egregiousness of totally. it. Totally. And the, the thing is, as, as consumers of content, that's what we all are consumers, we're all customers of news, is we get very fatigued very quick. We get very bored. 
very quick. So they need to tell stories that they think their audience want to hear. And I just think for what was going on here in this war is people aren't really interested. A lot of people across the world know where Azerbaijan or Armenia are on a map. So when you've got people, companies, just say if we take the UK, for example, when they're telling stories about um, the war in Armenia or Azerbaijan, people sat at home watching it on television or watching it on their phones and going, where are these places? I don't really know where these places are. So they can't relate to it. And that's the sad fact of what's going on here. It's very sad, but the there's, new- there's another part of that too. It's the chicken or the egg thing. Because I'll tell you, as... As an Armenian-American who, you know, I have a huge circle of friends and acquaintances and colleagues and such, and and most of them are non-Armenian, non-Armenian-American, and uh, some of them are also new to Artsakh and what's going on, have no idea about any of that. When you actually show it to them, people are then interested, and they are interested, and they do want to know, but you have to actually give them that option. You know what I mean? Of course. And for a few, for for a few of my friends, the ones that uh, I could trust to do this with, I have opened up my phone and without any warning, I've shown them a, a video of the beheading. And of course, it jolted them. It's sort of you know shocking. And then we've had a conversation about what it is that they just saw. But we cannot we cannot get a single you know it's a single segment about it on CNN or MSNBC or BBC or Sky News or anything like that and it's it's just sad but yeah. we it are is. grateful I totally for agree pe- with you now. yeah but we're grateful for people like you who are you know you have your boots on the ground and you're getting these stories and um, too bad that you know some of the other footage that you could have gotten you weren't allowed to yeah, and, and that's the, the thing. That's the work I do is is telling stories that people wouldn't know otherwise, and that's I think that's the key to it. And I've even at the beginning, during the war here when I was saying to them about let me film this, let me do this, and they were like no, 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 no. And I said to them, I go, you're documenting history here. I know at the moment that you don't think this is important to the war effort, yep. but this is important to the war effort. Uh, long term and this is where they failed and they're they yep. not understanding it. And history is written by the victors and. If you don't document it as the loser, your story doesn't get told. And if it doesn't get told, it never happens because it gets yep. forgotten about in time. And that's why what the work I do, bear in mind, I used to carry a rifle for many years and I used to go out fighting the Taliban, Al-Qaeda and Iraqi army and stuff like that. And now I totally don't, I don't fight. I just totally film to document these things because I see that the camera is more important than the, in the sense that you can persuade people and you change their opinion like you're saying with your friends by showing them a video is you can shape opinion to actually have some form of emotion to go right I've just seen that now I understand it because if I didn't see that I would have never known this was going on Indeed. and I've got so many people so many friends and followers that message me that are non-Armenians go if it wasn't for you reporting through Instagram uh, Facebook LinkedIn we wouldn't know that was going on because no one's telling us that and that's why mentioned stuff is so important because you are documenting history and you think about the genocide like you're saying there imagine if genocide was more documented there would be more people more nations that would recognize that genocide happens but because there isn't as that much documentation or as much as there should be it's easy for people to deny it ever happened and yeah. when you've got when you're in a 2020 war and you've got every soldier on a battlefield with a mobile phone in their hands, they've got their cell phone and they're filming everything. 
Then you've got these retarded, stupid idiots from Azerbaijan that are filming themselves, cutting people's heads off, executing people. You've got to think, go, what kind of person, what kind of savage are you? One, to do that. Two, to film it, yeah. to upload it onto the internet. Absolutely. It's ridiculous. And these, these idiots need to be held accountable because there's so many war crimes that have happened in this. And not only that, it's like going back to what you were saying earlier about the narrative and what's going on with Turkey and the PR firms. And stuff, is I've been talking to lots of people here about the prisoners of war that are still being held by Azerbaijan. And what's happened is they've now changed the name of the prisoner of war to a terrorist. So there's around about, as far as I know, mm-hmm. about 70 guys that are still being held. And what they've done is they've changed the narrative. They're trying to control the narrative. To go, these aren't prisoners of war. These aren't Armenian soldiers anymore. Yeah, it's all about these spin. are terrorists. It's about spin. I mean, of course Donald Trump for four years destroyed most of this country and parts of the world too by spinning everything. You know, everyone, uh, any any news, <laughs> all the facts on paper. If anything mm-hmm. wasn't complimentary to him, it was fake news, uh, and yet he complained about fake news. So uh, we're you and, know more than familiar the issue, with that. We, yeah, I, I do a lot of guest speaking um, back in the UK and I talk about disinformation and I've been involved in the stories that have been disinformation and stuff. And so I have first-hand experience and it's, it's very important in the, that militarily on the battlefield there's a war going on, but there's also a war going on in the information space. Yes. And very much now, even though post-war, that war is continuing here in the sense that Turkey and Azerbaijan are trying to control the narrative because there is a lot of evidence that Syrian mercenaries, jihadists, were used in this conflict. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing now is they're trying to say, well, hold on a second, we're not a terrorist-supporting nation. We don't support terrorists. What we are, we're fighting against terrorists. But I have to tell you, you look at the- I, I agree with you 100%, and that's, that's a lot of their PR firms in the U.S. dictating what they should say. But I have to tell you this, if any intelligent person, especially elected officials, European leaders, organizations, uh, even some of the biased ones like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and UNESCO. If anyone that really, really, truly, authentically wants to look at all the documentation, look at everything that's come out, and they can still make that conclusion, then they're on Aliyev and Erdogan's payroll, which some of them are. I just have to tell you that because this is no longer about the yeah, spin. Yeah. This is about this is about like you know it's like Donald Trump. Donald Trump can get on Twitter or used to and tweet thirty absurd lies, uh, excuse for every corrupt illegal thing that he did. But intelligent people looked at it and said, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> I mean, mm. you know, you can't just call something fake news and think that it's going to get dismissed. I mean, this is a you know, former president is about to get impeached for a second time. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with British documentary filmmaker, Emil Gessen. But before we leave, Emil, I want to ask you this, because this is really important for me to know from you. Going forward, because we we talked about a mistake that I think the Armenian military made, which is not allowing enough press to get out. I want to know from you, going forward, what advice would you, would you give to the Artsakh and Armenian officials or just country that would help them? What should they do differently? Well, in, that's a tough, very tough question because like me as, a, as an Englishman, what advice would, I, would they want to listen to from me, really? But I, well, I, let me I say think... this real quick. My show is called Let's Get Blunt, <laughs> so hold nothing back. Yeah. 
Well, no, I just think they, they've accommodated me very well in the sense that they have helped me uh, massively. But at the same time, my hands have been tied to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, all I'll say is that they need they need outside assistance on how to deal with communications in the future. They need to understand how to use social media to an advantage for telling their stories. Because like I was saying, it's war is fought online now. Social media has been weaponized. And that, we saw that very successful by Azerbaijan, how they used it. And I just think they need to be more open to the West here because there's still that massive Russian rhetoric, the Russian influence out here. And that pushes away the Westerners because we obviously know the difference between the West and Russia. And so I would say be a bit more receptive to what's going on. I think there's a lot more training that needs to be done in certain elements here. But yeah, it's, I think the future here is bright. I don't think this is... a the bigger, yeah, you can lose a war, but you can still be prosper. Um, you can still prosper afterwards. It's not an end. So I think, I like yeah, that. I mean, it still has a bright future. I like and that. I think those that are sat in mourning and going, oh, people should be out enjoying themselves, or should be getting on with their life, is like, well, you come and live here, come and see it for yourself. And if you lived through this, the constant threat of the of the Turks, you might see things very differently. That you've got to be resilient, and you need to adapt overcome and move forward and i think definitely i'm seeing armenia move forward now i appreciate everything that you said last thing is i want to support your documentary and i know there are a lot of people out there that want to support your documentary so please do a call to action tell us what we can do how we can help yeah so this project's been so um solely funded by donations so on my instagram account there's a gofundme account um, page there We're now moving into post-production, which is the most expensive part. We're nearly out of funds. So ideally, if anyone wants to support that. Also, anyone who's got any high influential connections in the film industry, especially in America, Mm -hmm. is get them to get in touch with me. I'm all over social media. You can find me anywhere. Uh, Or if there's any private donors that want to help tell this story to get it to a high level and on a budget which we've got left because of course we're going to make a good documentary but the more money is invested into this the better we can tell that story um because this is a documentary that will go down in history in my opinion that's not me being narcissistic as such it's me saying that some of the footage we've got is brilliant and it's a story that needs to be told not to an armenian audience a story that needs to be told to an international audience so they understand the struggle that's gone on here and the, and the great advantage, I, don't, well, I shouldn't say advantage, but the great, I think the benefit of this is that it's being made by non-Armenian. And I think that's uh, really important. And, you know, not that an Armenian couldn't make a, a very unbiased and um, objective documentary, but I really like that you're doing this and you have military background and you have, you know, the region, you've been in Russia, you've been in Ukraine, you you really understand the geopolitical um the, the sensibilities that's happening. So uh, don't be shy about telling us your Instagram handle for people to go Yeah, to. it's just my it's, it's my name. It's Emil Giesen, E-M-I-L-E-G-H-E-S-S-E-N. Um, across all social media, that's I use just my name. You can find me there. And yeah, if anyone's got any questions or anyone wants to know anything more, send me a message. I'm always open to like, speaking to people, um, helping educate people that don't understand really what's going on here. So yeah, um, Fantastic. thanks for the time. So, but I do want to thank you for the show, for being on the Blunt Post with Vic, your your wisdom. I'm so excited about your documentary. I'm, I'm just jazzed about it. Yeah. I'm totally, I'm so grateful. I know that countless people are grateful for you. 
when I when I announced on social media that I was about to interview you, people got really excited and started sending me messages. Mm-hmm. So I just want you to know that I know you feel the love directly, but just want to tell you that too, Emil. No, thank you. And uh, thank you again. Cheers. Take care. That was Emil Gessen, British documentary filmmaker, uh, who was kind enough to call from Armenia as he is still working on his current project, uh, 45 Days, The Fight for a Nation. Thank you, Emil, for, uh, for the call and for being on The Blunt Post with Vic. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And, uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie. Uh, Both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jaramie. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.